We'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus 13. And probably isn't uh, too far to say have a pin in Exodus 12. We'll be I'll be reading from both this morning as well as uh, warm up your fingers because we're going to be taking a stroll through the Old Testament into the New. Our, my goal this morning is to get from Egypt to Covenant Baptist Church. Uh, we do so by way of His Word, through His Spirit, by Christ our Lord. We are returning again to this Exodus moment of the people of Egypt, or excuse me, the people of Israel, as the Lord is delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And He's not just delivering them out of slavery, but, uh, but His uh, intention is that He's delivering them into the land. So that the Lord is not just here being one who's overthrowing oppression. He's not just one who is, who is seeing an afflicted people and having compassion and, and taking away uh, the tyranny that they live in. For the Lord is not delivering them for tyranny's sake. For He doesn't deliver all those who, who, who live under despotism in the Old Testament. We read of many a nation that uh, were ruled with an iron fist by their rulers. They did... Uh, despicable things amongst their people, and yet the Lord did not overthrow them for that sake. And so we see this not as a rule of what God will do in time, though ultimately He will overthrow all rulers and all authority, and it will be Christ who is the only ruler and only authority. But what we see here is that He's specially setting apart Israel for His purpose to display His grace and mercy, and especially His grace and mercy in Christ, in the true Israelite, in the one who will come as the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. This all in the intention of the Lord, in this historical act of redemption. And so we come to it with holy anticipation that the Lord will reveal to us Christ here in Exodus 13. Let us read a few verses in Exodus 12, and then we'll go to Exodus 13, 1 and 2, and 11 through 16. I'll begin in Exodus 12, 29 through 32, and then I'll go into Exodus 13. The word of the Lord says, Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of cattle, Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not one, not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, go out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. Exodus 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. And then in verse 11. Now when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaan, 
of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall come and it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him with a powerful hand, The Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb. But every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we come to you now after having read your word and we ask you, Lord, that you would attend the preaching of your word. By your spirit, Lord, may these words be true. May they be attuned to your word so that they may be a blessing and a nourishment to the souls of your people. This, by your doing alone, by your grace and for your glory, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue to make sure we draw back this exodus to the point at which Pharaoh asks, Moses, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Over and over again through these weeks of going through the plagues, we've asked that question again and again. And we've seen how the Lord decisively took nine plagues, nine plus one, to display before Pharaoh that he is the one true and living God, that there are no gods beside him. They're not a pantheon of gods and the Lord is the highest and there are lower gods that you can worship. No, the Lord is saying, I alone am above all gods. Your gods are of nothing. And he demonstrates this here supremely in this 10th plague for he will show himself to be the God who is just and righteous. For he judges Egypt this night. He judges Egypt and he would have judged Israel if they had not put the lamb's blood over their doorposts or on their lintels and on their doorposts. But he goes through the land as a display of his righteous judgment so that the Egyptians would know that they stand in opposition to the Lord. And though we don't find Pharaoh ever repenting of this. It was clear from his relenting and sending out the Israelites that he was doing so as a defeated foe before his uh, mighty enemy. And so we see that after the Lord have nine plus one because there was three cycles of signs and wonder. 
and where Yahweh brings one more blow in this 10th plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And we've been recognizing that there are many typical or typological pictures of the sacrificial work of Christ scattered throughout the Old Testament, yet the passage before us is something of more completeness and of a many-sided portrayal of the person and work of Christ. And so as we looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we saw that it, it is for us in Christ to teach that the church collectively and the believer individually are called to walk in practical holiness This is a direct result of being washed in the blood and having communion with the sufferings of Christ. Now, here at the consecration, or as it says, sanctify to me, the consecration of the firstborn, the people of the firstborn, who have been bought with a price, ought to live lives of gratitude, entrusting their life to the one who has set them apart for that purpose. So the people of the firstborn who have been bought with a price ought to live lives of gratitude, entrusting their life to the one who has set them apart for that purpose. So we'll look at the firstborn of the Israelites, the firstborn of Israel, and the congregation of the firstborn this morning. We see that in Exodus Chapter 13, verse 3, as he reintroduces the unleavened bread, it says, The Lord uh, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. That is, comes right before the section of unleavened bread, which is tightly followed by this consecration of firstborn. So they both serve this purpose of remembrance. These institutions were for the Israelites to remember this Exodus event. The implication is that there would rise up another generation that may forget. They may forget that the Lord delivered them out of Egypt when they were slaves. And if brought them into this land. And so he gives these institutions for their remembrance. Well, we know in our day and age, memory still plays a prominent role in our society. I looked it up. We have 11 11 official federal holidays. Holidays, holy days. Not all these days are holy, but we call them holidays colloquially. And these federal holidays, we know, range from remembering our nation's independence to remembering those that gave their lives in battle to remembering those that have served in battle. We have these 11 federal holidays that include Christmas, the day when Santa brings our presents, or, more rightly, a day when Christ came and there was a proclamation of peace on earth and goodwill towards men there are other holidays that will go unnamed uh, this morning but it is all to see that we have a distinct bent towards forgetfulness even our government understands it and so we have holidays of remembrance we also understand that Memory is something that is cherished. We go to make memories so that 
we can remember things so that there, that we have memorable times. We wonder at those who have a photographic memory. We often also equate intelligence with memory. Those who do well on tests are those that can remember the course material the best. For believers, we are to know that we tend to be a forgetful people. We tend to forget the blessings of the Lord. We tend to forget His place and rule over all things. We tend to forget that, as we will see, we've been bought with a price and that comes with implications upon our lives. But besides setting apart a day for remembrance, as the Lord so graciously has done, as we gather on the Lord's Day to remember the grace of the Lord, He also gave us two ordinances to remind us of our redemption. We celebrate it as these ordinances as often as we're able. We joyously celebrate baptism as we're able, and we celebrate the Lord's table as often as we gather. Not as a mere memorial, but certainly to remember, so that we would not forget what the Lord has done for us. And so it was with the Passover festival and the consecration of the firstborn. One was to be a regular remembrance. that was a scheduled remembrance, a yearly remembrance in the Passover. The other was to be as often as there was opportunity. As often as there was a firstborn to be consecrated, there was this rite of the consecration of the firstborn. Let's look at that a little closer this morning as we look at the firstborn of the Israelites. First, the rite itself. The that they were to give to the Lord the firstborn of every beast they owned, except for donkey fowls, which were to be redeemed. Donkeys were unclean animal, and later on in Leviticus, we, we hear that the animals that were kept domestically, that though they were unclean, would have to be redeemed. The donkey was a beast of burden. It was an integral part to their family life. Yet it was an unclean animal, and so it was not to be offered to the Lord in sacrifice, but redeemed by the Lord. And then finally, the firstborn of the womb was not to be offered in sacrifice as some of the false gods required in the land of Canaan, as we find in other places uh, where King Ahab offered up his firstborn to the gods, to the false gods. But these firstborn of the womb would be redeemed, would be recognized as set apart by the Lord. And as we saw in verse 2 and verse 15, specifically, it was the males that to be redeemed. Why? Because it was the place of the firstborn. The place of the firstborn was such that they would receive a double inheritance. The inheritance of the family would be split amongst the sons, yet the firstborn son was to be given a double inheritance. Yet we recognize that in this double inheritance, it was to the birthright of the firstborn, but it didn't always go to the chronological firstborn. So there was a sense of uh, choice or election involved there. For we have in the sons of Israel, Joseph receiving the double portion. He wasn't the firstborn. Reuben 
was the firstborn. We see in David, he's not the firstborn of the sons of Jesse, but he receives the inheritance of the throne of of Israel. We see it between Jacob and Esau. Esau selling his birthright. But we see that the firstborn plays a place in the family where he actually, by receiving a double portion, represents the family. So the consecration of the firstborn represents the Lord as the owner of the family. For if the Lord has required the firstborn, and so the firstborn is to be redeemed from the Lord, it is the Lord claiming ownership of each and every family of the Israelites. They could not escape it. The Lord was the owner of their family. And it was demonstrated in the consecration of the firstborn. It also shows that God was the giver of life. And the first life was specifically consecrated to him as a token of gratitude. And it was also to serve for them, as I've said, as a remembrance. But the remembrance wasn't just to be remembered, but it was also to be participation. And in their remembering the Exodus, they were actually participating in it. For even in the rite of the Passover meal, they were to bind up their clothes. They were to have their staff in hand. They were to eat certain food to remember them leaving in haste. Here is the same with the consecration of the firstborn. There was a remembrance as participation. Each new generation of Israel that took over from the old was called upon to participate in the redemptive events of the Exodus. In the description of the Passover festival in Exodus 12, Exodus 12 and 13, and the various references where the Israelites of subsequent generations were invited to experience for themselves, and to reactualize the Exodus, there seems to be an indication that the original redemptive events are open-ended toward the future. The salvific reality which each subsequent generation was to encounter as a new Exodus and their obedient response to God in present redemptive time. So they were to come to both the consecration of the firstborn and the Passover feast in remembrance as participation. Subsequent generations were not involved in this historical act, and yet they were given this right, this institution of the Lord, so that they could be. So that they could remember that in the seed and loins of their fathers, they participated in this exodus. Or if we read in Hebrews that Levi offered tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, yet unborn through Abraham. So we can imply that so the sons and daughters of Israel do the same as they participate in these two rites or these two institutions. There would be other ones given to to the Israelites, but these here first and foremost. And so we must see that there is a a progress given to this idea of firstborn because the Lord makes a point to set apart the firstborn here. He says in, in the 
killing of the firstborn of Egypt, I was also setting apart the firstborn of Israel. Something to understand first is that we can see Israel as a firstborn. The Lord references that in Exodus 4. You can turn with me if you're able. In Exodus 4, verses 21 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your firstborn. All the nations of the Lord of the world belong to the Lord. There is not a family under in heaven who has not been named by the Lord. And though they do not all follow the Lord, they are all owned by the Lord, for the Lord is their creator. Yet he specifically sets apart and aside the Israelites as a double portion of the inheritance as it, as it, as it goes. They would not just be a nation unto God, but they would be a nation unto whom, the one by whom all nations would be blessed. Israel was a firstborn. Israel's firstborn now belonged to the Lord. So you have the nation condensed now to the firstborn of each family. It's implied in our passage is explicit in Exodus 34, verse 19. The first offspring from every room of every womb belongs to me. And all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. So what the Lord had said about the Israelites as being his firstborn, now he says about every firstborn male in Israel. Later, the Lord would condense it Again, later, the Levites would be the Lord's chosen firstborn of Israel. In Numbers 3, verses 11 through 13, let's turn there so we can read the word of the Lord as he speaks about the Levites. He says in in Numbers, excuse me, Numbers 3, verse 11. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites, from among the sons of Israel, instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel. From man to beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. Here the Lord sets apart, set apart the Levites. He says, I own all your firstborns, and as payment, I will take one tribe unto myself. These Levites become a substitute for all firstborn Israelite males. And these, we know the Levites are the, out of the Levites is the priesthood. And so they are the ones that are intermediaries according to Moses' covenant, whereby they offer the sacrifices that were according to the old covenant, so that that Israelite, could be renewed in their covenant with the Lord. So we go from Israel to Israel's firstborn 
to now the Levites. And then the Lord sets apart David's son to be his son. In 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 7 and 12 through 16, Nathan speaking prophetically to David says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your, your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Though we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, he is also speaking about Solomon who will build the temple of the Lord. He's promising to David that through David, his sons will be sons of God. They will be as firstborns to the Lord. This all leading to the firstborn of Israel. We go from Israel as firstborn to the Levites, or to the firstborn of the Israelites, to the Levites, to David, now to Christ, the firstborn of Israel. We see the firstborn of David to be typological of a future firstborn. Turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 and verse 20, he begins to speak about David, but specifically David, my servant. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. An outstretched arm and a mighty hand. An outstretched hand and a mighty arm. The Lord delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. Here that same hand and arm are put to display how he will be with David. And then in verse 24 through 27, my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And my name, his horn will be, and in my name, his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Here we see that David's son would be the firstborn. And here, typologically, we see this firstborn is Christ our Lord. How do we know that Christ is the firstborn to end all firstborns. Turn to Luke chapter 2.
In Luke 2, we read how obedient Joseph and Mary were, because it says, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, this is Christ, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child to Jesus, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And the sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here Simeon is given a prophecy by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Christ. And here the Lord has chosen that on the day when Christ was consecrated, on the day when the redemption for Christ as a firstborn son of Israel was paid, Simeon comes and proclaims him to be salvation. Proclaims him to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory of the people Israel. Christ is the firstborn of Israel. Lord, instituting on that night when he delivers Israel out of Egypt, he had had instituted it with the intention of bringing about the one who would fulfill it. We have language of such Christ in his high priestly prayer in John 17. When Christ is praying to the Father and asking him many things, he says in verse 19, For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Here Christ is speaking first about the the disciples. Then in verse 20, he speaks to those that would believe on their word or believe in him through their word. But Christ says that he for their sakes that he sanctifies himself. For their sakes, he's being consecrated so that they may be sanctified. 
See, we come to Exodus 13 and we learn of the history of Israel. And yet we start to see that the history of Israel is our history in Christ. For Christ says, as the firstborn of Israel, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. In the true son of Israel, we are consecrated. The result of our firstborn redeeming us Peter writes of in 1 Peter 2, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here Peter writing in light of the Exodus event. Because he says that there are people for God, that we are a people for God's own possession. Where in Exodus we read that God has said, Every firstborn of the womb is mine. So we see that in Christ, the firstborn of Israel, we too are owned by God. We, as Hebrews says in chapter 12, and you can turn with me there, because we'll read a few verses there. As Hebrews says, 12 says we are the congregation of the firstborn in Hebrews 12 verse 22 but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Here we read in Hebrews that we are the church of the firstborn. Every Lord's Day we remember the consecration of the firstborn Son. Every Lord's Day we gather and we remember that in Him we are the firstborn of God. That is, we have received every heavenly blessing through Christ who is our firstborn. And as we remember that, as we remember that, it has implications upon us. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought for a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. We are not our own. Just as every firstborn of Israel was not 
that families. It was the Lord's. So we, as the church of the firstborn, are the Lord's. We are not our own. And it was pictured not only in the offering for the firstborn, but also for the donkey fell, that we understand how we come to be the firstborn. Because the donkey was an unclean animal. And it was to be redeemed and not devoted. The same offering was required for a donkey as for a firstborn male. For an unclean animal and a son of Israel, the same was required. Redemption. The Lord was displaying that the believing Israelite was to know that he was like the unclean animal. He was in need of a greater redemption. A.W. Pink says the donkey is an unclean animal, such as a man by nature, shaped in iniquity, conceived in sin. The donkey is a most stupid and senseless creature, so also is the natural man, proudly as he may boast of his powers of reason, conceited as he may be over his intellectual achievements. The truth is that he is utterly devoid of any spiritual intelligence. The word of the Lord says, the fool says says in his heart, there is no God. And if you think that you can recognize who God is and somehow get to him through your own efforts, you are that fool because that is not a God who is truly God. Furthermore, as we are set apart in Christ, we read in Romans 12, 1, we know it well. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Personal devotedness is the first thing which God has a right to look for from His blood-bought people. We've mentioned it in the past, the twin benefits of union with Christ is justification, a right standing before God, and sanctification. That is a devotedness to the things of God, to be conformed and transformed into the image of Christ. We've been going through it in our catechism class, the Orthodox Catechism. Question uh, 91 reads, We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? Because we have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by His blood. But we do good because Christ by His Spirit is also renewing us to be like Himself. So that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all He has done for us. And so so that He may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits. And so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. So people of the firstborn, 
You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Offer your whole selves and lives of gratitude. Entrust your life to the one who has set you apart for that purpose. For we will be like the firstborn as we are born in him. Let's pray. O Lord, the wonders of your grace and mercy to us in Christ, whereby we read of events thousands and thousands of years ago, yet ordained by you to have this meaning of grace and mercy in Christ. Oh, the wonders of your ways. Oh, Lord, may those of us who continue to spurn your grace deny their need of you or think that they can earn something from you. May they see the futility of that as they see the futility of those that sought shelter in a house that was not covered in the blood of the land. We give you praise, Lord, that you are the God of all things. We thank you for continuing to be with us in this time. We ask these things in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.